I just want to touch on this for a moment before we get into uh, the teaching this evening. It's really great for me, like sometimes I do double duty here and I play music and then I also preach and sometimes I get kind of caught up in all that, but I'm going to open up a little bit of myself to you this evening. It's really cool for me to sit there in the back and to watch Tessa and the band kind of take over and, and lead folks in worship, but I was really struck by one line of a song that I'd never even heard until this, this evening. I am loved by you. It's who I am. I don't know about you guys, but a lot of times we kind of get caught up in stuff and we uh, focus on the negative. Like I'm a person that kind of will anticipate what people are thinking about me and then not even allow them to, to say that to me. And I've already made up in my mind how they may have written me off or put me in a certain category. And I've kind of um, already accepted criticism and critique in that way. And at times I can get in my own mind where that becomes who I am. I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good looking enough, I'm not sensitive enough, I'm not available enough, I'm not fill in the blank with whatever it is that, that's plaguing me in that moment. In this room at times we get kind of heady and, and we will tonight as well, we're gonna rip a text apart and hopefully make sense of it in its first century Jewish context. But if you leave here with, with nothing else, I at least want you to know that your identity is found in Christ. Your identity is not found in the negative that you might be hearing or that you might be making up for yourself. Your identity is one who is loved by the Most High God. Regardless of what you're going through, regardless of the things that you're struggling through in this moment, if school is tough, if work is tough, if relationships are tough, whatever it is that, that's identifying you at this moment, my hope and my heart and my prayer is that we will be a people that are identified as those who are loved by Christ. So we're gonna jump into the book of Mark this evening. This is the 24th time we have opened up the book of Mark and we've got about 30 more scheduled. So I don't even apologize for that because this is a good book. And if you have to spend 50 some odd weeks in a book, why not hang out with Jesus, right? This is Mark chapter six, excuse me, Mark chapter seven, uh, beginning in verse one. We'll kind of turn the page here. And I'll warn you ahead of time, we've got 23 verses, so stick with me here. Mark seven, verse one. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders? instead of eating their food with defiled hands. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. 
For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lawlessness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's begin with a word of prayer this evening. God, we ask that we would allow our identity to be found in you and you alone. We ask that you would mold us and shape us, that you would critique and that you would convict and that you would call us into a holier life, that you would call us into a sure understanding of who you are. But God, in the midst of even that shaping process, help us to understand who you've called us to be, your sons and your daughters. Help us to live in light of that calling and help us to reflect the love of your son, Jesus, to everyone that we meet. Help us to be people who are quick to forgive, quick to show mercy, quick to include, quick to be loving. And we ask that this evening that you would give us illumination through your spirit, help these words not to be contained to the first century, but help us to ask good questions about your word this evening. Help us to leave here changed. Help us to leave here with a different and more profound glimpse of you than when we came. We ask these things all in your son's name. Amen. So N.T. Wright says of this passage, one of the difficulties with Mark 7 is that unless you're inside the Jewish world, you won't get the point. This is, this is true of studying the New Testament and Old Testament in general, that unless you can put yourself within the proper historical context, that you're not really going to understand what's going on. And for a lot of us, we just kind of open up our Bibles and we read what's on the page and then we try to make application. But this text in particular is locked within a first century Jewish context. The things that the Pharisees and the scribes are um, trying to accuse Jesus and his followers of are very much rooted within a specific religious and political system that is very foreign from our own. 
There's also things that we need to realize just about the way that this narrative is working. As we've turned the page into Mark chapter 7, we've kind of put away the different stories that we've heard up to this point. Up to this point, we've seen Jesus teaching, and we've seen Jesus healing, and we've seen Jesus doing these crazy things. And from that, he's gained a following. Wherever he is, people want to be with him and near him. The text that we left off with last week is we see Jesus going into a village and people just flocking him, wanting to be healed by him, and they were bringing out people just to be near him and with him. Jesus, his his fame was growing, his name was becoming one that was gaining an audience, and people were wanting to be with him. Yet, when we turn the page and we go into Mark chapter 7, we see the Pharisees and the scribes, and it says of the scribes that these are a group of people that have traveled up from Jerusalem up to the Sea of Galilee and the the roundabout regions to, to see Jesus and to sort of understand what he's doing, and it's almost as if the dark clouds are rolling in. It is ominous, and what is happening is not necessarily good. It talks about the Pharisees and the scribes gathering together in this huddle almost, whispering and and colluding and trying to trap Jesus and to get this ministry to come to an end. And we see that even in in how they begin this this, uh, discussion with Jesus and with his people. One commentator named R.T. France says this, opposition and rejection have of course been recurrent themes in the Galilean ministry so far. But with this new pericope, the tension between Jesus and the religious leadership rises to a new level of mutual repudiation. Say mutual repudiation. It's like the kids in the back of the station wagon at the end of summer vacation. And it's like, kids, you have got to get out of the station wagon and get in the house and get out of my face. Parents would never say that. It's very, it's much more loving. And brothers and sisters certainly wouldn't fight that way. I've got memories of my sister and I. Erica used to be a lot better than me at sports. Um, and I remember one day in particular, I was trying to bat and she was pitching and I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. I was just like swinging and missing and swinging and missing. And I'd had it, so I just put my bat down, walked out to the pitcher's mound and bit her on the shoulder. <laughs> I mean, when all else fails, right? You just put the bat down, you walk out and you just take a, take a chunk out of your sister's shoulder because she's better than you. If you can injure the shoulder, they don't have a lot, it's the velocity goes down, but there's mutual repudiation between Jesus and the religious leaders, and I love that because it's not just Jesus, the meek and mild guy that you see in the videos that's kind of taken this onslaught of of punishment. Jesus is actually handing it back to the Pharisees and the scribes in this interchange, as we'll see, and what he's doing is completely and utterly radical. I think that the church, in, in some ways, has sort of tamed Jesus, but in this text, man, he is, he's going for it in a way that is quite, quite crazy. But they're, they're reaching a new level of mutual repudiation, and Jesus is deliberately fueling the fire with a more radical pronouncement, even than his controversial comments on the Sabbath. Remember, Jesus used to be doing these miracles on the Sabbath, and the, the Pharisees and the scribes would try to attack him for that because he was going against Jewish law by doing so. And Jesus, what he was instigating in those moments was completely countercultural. It was completely different than people, than what people were expecting at the time. He was healing. He was putting the needs of others above, in a sense, the traditions 
of the Pharisees. And we can see in, the, in chapter 2 and into chapter 3, Jesus kind of bringing this new teaching. One of the things, uh, one of the, the texts that has meant so much to me over the past few months is Jesus' battle cry, new wine into new wineskins. You don't put new wine into old wineskins because they'll just burst and everything will go all over the floor and you'll, you'll lose the good wine. Jesus is basically saying, Pharisees and religious leaders, the structures that you have been living by, they can't contain what I'm doing. They can't contain me. They can't contain the kingdom. When Jesus shows up, he keeps talking about the kingdom that's invading. It's coming here, it's coming now, and it is in this place, and it is changing everything. So this story is, is set within that trajectory, although according to France, he says that this story is even up in the ante even more than that. On the surface, it seems like it's a story about washing hands. The Pharisees and the scribes, they basically say, hey, why are your folks, why are your disciples eating food without washing their hands first? Now, don't be fooled. This has nothing to do with hygiene. Robert Stein says hygienic issues are not to be read into this situation. Now, you guys have heard some of my mild OCD tendencies and my obsessive compulsive need to like wash my hands all the time. I don't think that's a bad thing when food's involved, but I do kind of, if I'm sitting at the table and I think to myself, oh gosh, when was the last time I washed my hands, I gotta go, and then I'll go wash my hands and get ready to eat. I think that's kind of clean, right? Somebody affirm me, that's, that's okay, it's okay, okay, all right. Um, but this has nothing to do with that. This is not a hygienic issue where they're saying, ooh, Jesus, your disciples, they're so gross. They're eating bread with their hands. Or like in, in the, the first century, like Middle Eastern culture like this, it was, it was common for people to be laying around on those little couches, like eating food and just kind of taking the hummus, and like I got all the hands and like, ooh, Jesus, they should be washing their hands first. Well, it has nothing to do with, with hygiene. It has to do instead with ritual purification. This was the thing that was separating the Jewish people from others. This is one of the things that set them off and marked them as a certain people. It was an, an identity thing. They were people that cared about ritual purity, the things that they touched, the things that they ate, the things that they wore, the things that they allowed themselves to come into contact with. These were the things that marked the Jews off from other people and the Pharisees were saying, this is important for us as a people. Jesus, why don't your disciples care about this? And by implication, why don't you care about this? How can you allow them to get away with this when we for centuries have been going through the rituals of purification why, do you, why are they null and void for you and your followers at this time? Mark even gives us some background information. Most people would say that Mark is written to a Gentile audience, meaning it was written for non-Jews. So there's like this parenthetical statement after this controversy of the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes saying, Jesus, why don't your guys wash their hands before they eat? And then Mark lets us know what the problem is with that. He goes on to say the Pharisees and all the Jews, that's probably an overstatement because this isn't necessarily something that all the Jews um, were doing as we'll see in a moment. They do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Mark is helping his readers kind of get an idea because for most people this would have been strange. 
like why this was a controversy. This was a, a Jewish thing in this time that a Gentile audience would not have understood the importance of it. Joel Marcus informs us that hand washing is not a biblical requirement for lay people. This wasn't something that, that everyone necessarily had to do. All those other things about what to touch and, and how to wash and all those things, those were the identity markers, but this one in particular is kind of strange because for some people this wasn't as big of a deal as the Pharisees seemed to be turning it into. It says, hand washing is not a biblical requirement for lay people or normal people or non-priests or non-religious leaders. In the Old Testament, only priests are required to wash their hands before offering a sacrifice, but the Pharisees in their tradition appear to have extended this requirement of hand washing to the laity, to the normal people, to everybody. Hence, when they see Jesus' disciples eating food without washing hands, they say, what in the world is going on? This is not a biblical requirement. This is a requirement that the Pharisees have, have in a sense, made up. It says this is based on the theory that every Jew should live as a priest and every Jewish home should be like the temple. So what's happening here is this group of people, the Pharisees and the scribes, they are equating human tradition with divine commands. Now don't go all crazy and say this is... Um, traditions versus scripture. It's not necessarily that. For a Jewish audience at this point, they would have had a different understanding of what was going on. And I take you back to our dear friend, Charlton Heston. On top of Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments. In this story where Moses is ascending the mountain and receiving the written law from God himself, most Jewish people would also believe that at that time, Moses received what they call an oral law or an oral tradition. It wasn't just stuff that was written down. It was also stuff that was told directly to Moses, and then Moses told it to the people, and then the people told it to their kids, and then those kids grew up and had kids, and then they told it to their kids, and those kids grew up, and they just keep... It's, it's a tradition on its own that's not written down in the Bible. Do you see what's happening here? And so for centuries, the written law and the oral law, they kind of existed side by side at the same time. And it wasn't until 200 CE when the oral law was written down. But for the Jews at this time, they would not have said the written law is better or worse than the oral law. They would have held both of those things together as equal importance. Okay? Now stay with me here because I, I know this is kind of heady stuff, but I think that what's happening here is, is important for us if we can just hang on for a bit. Jesus, however, is not seeing these two things equated. He is putting human traditions above divine commands and saying, how dare you accuse us of doing this when you guys do something that's much worse? You're taking human traditions and elevating them and not necessarily even keeping biblical commands. He launches into this diatribe, and, and here Jesus, not the meek, mild, pacifist Jesus, this is an intense, rebellious, strong Jesus that's launching into, you hypocrites, how, how dare you come at us with, with this talk? Don't you know what Isaiah the prophet said? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You guys have let go of the commands of God, and you're just holding on to human traditions. The thing that you think is important, this bit about washing hands, that's not the greater issue. That's not the weightier point of the law. 
Why are we even having this conversation? In a sense, is what Jesus is saying. He's saying you've taken the human traditions and you've placed them over the divine commands so much so that you have nullified what the divine commands are. Specifically, this is the instance that Jesus is giving. And again, stick with me for a couple minutes here. They have been declaring money that is set aside to help parents. If people would just say that this is Corbin, that is, this is a gift, this is an offering, this is something that's sanctified for God. If people would just say that, then people would not have to give it to their parents. This was in a time frame, remember, where parents were, in a sense, dependent upon their kids to help them when they get old. It's not too dissimilar from from us right, right now in this time. It might be far away for us that, that we can't even wrap our brains around that, but at some point our parents are going to need us. And this is like kind of this legalese move that people had been doing to get around that where they say, if you could just say that whatever this is is Corbin, it's God's, and I don't have to give it to my parents and I can sort of keep it for myself. There was even more slippery ways of declaring something to be God's and then keeping it and benefiting from it from yourself. So what Jesus is saying, people have, have allowed this to happen and in a sense, you've taken away the 10 commandments. The call to honor your parents, to honor your father and mother, it doesn't even matter anymore because all you guys have said is, this is Corbin, this is for God, which means I don't have to give my money to my parents anymore. And what Jesus was saying at that time is, and we're talking about washing hands, you, you have a problem with my friends eating food without ritually purifying themselves, but what you guys have done and what you have taught is so much worse. You've elevated these traditions so much so that you can begin to abuse people. Jesus says, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. This text is not just about washing hands. This text goes so much beyond that into how we understand God, how we understand the law, how we understand what we're called to do, and how at times our heart demonstrates that what we say does not match up with what we do. It demonstrates us to be people that say that we're close to God and that we want to be in relationship with God and that we want to be pleasing to God, but yet our actions do something that's completely different. We declare things Corbin so that we don't have to give it to people and we can just keep it and hoard it and we kind of use our own reason and rationality to get around what God is calling us to do. Jesus says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. This was, this was radical because what happens with, with this text in particular, it becomes a watershed moment for Mark and the community surrounding Mark. One commentator says that Mark considers this saying about nothing from the outside can defile, rather it's the things that come from the inside of person that actually defiles them. That is what Jesus calls a parable and that's the climax of this passage and the central point of this whole story is Jesus saying it's not the things on the outside, it's not you breaking bread and eating it without washing your hands that defiles you. It's the things that you say and the things that you do and the inside when it becomes real and tangible. Those are the things that defile you. Mark brings this whole thing to a conclusion when he said, in saying this, 
Jesus declared all foods clean. We hear something like that and we're sitting there and we say, okay, who cares? Think for a moment as a first century Jew, one that has lived their entire life observing what is clean and what is unclean. You only eat certain things. There's certain things that are off the table, not just because they taste gross, but because in eating that, you would be defiled. You would be ritually impure. You would be, in a sense, separating yourself from God and relationship with him. There were these rules and regulations that you followed, the things that you wore, the things that you touched, the things that you ate, all these things that called you who you are. It's who I am. I eat these things and I don't eat those things. I wear this kind of material and I don't wear that kind of material. I observe these laws and I don't do those things. Like, this is who I am. But when Jesus has this, this saying about it's not the things from outside that defile you, it's the things inside that defile you. And the way that Mark describes it says, in saying that Jesus declares all foods clean, What Jesus is doing in this moment is taking whatever boundary there was between the Jewish people and anyone else and completely obliterating it. Now think again for for a moment as a first century Jew. You've lived your entire life in this way, in in this tunnel vision. This is what I'm doing. This is who I am. This is what I'm supposed to be and this is what I'm supposed to do. And then you have this radical prophet rabbi over here saying, no, that's wrong. It's something totally different. All foods are clean. Um, but what? Yeah, the, the, the things that you've been living, the way you've been living, um, I'm kind of doing away with that. I'm destroying that. I'm giving you a different alternative to how life has been. The identity that you've had over here should be different now because of what Jesus was doing and saying and what he would eventually do for us. What's also cool about this is a a throwaway statement like this from Mark is basically saying, hey folks, all of you, you get to be a part of this story now. It's not just the Jews over here in this one frame of mind, it is now open to everyone to understand who Jesus is and what he's calling us into. Like we have these lines that define who is in and who is out. And even now as 21st century Christians in America, we have this line of what we deem to be Christian. And if you're over here, you're not. So we tried our best to stay over here and stay in line with this, with the set beliefs and the set practices and the set whatever else. We try to look the part, act the part, smile the part, sing the part. We try to be everything that that we're supposed to be. And yet what Jesus did in this text is he took those identity markers and he moved them. And he called his audience into a different way of thinking and living and being. And sometimes for us, we're over here and we've got this trench built about we're in and they're out and we won't allow ourselves to see any sort of differences between the two and we miss what Jesus is calling us into in the sense of everything that he did was meant to destroy that chasm and to allow people who we deem to be out to actually be in.
Jesus is moving that line of identity, and I think sometimes we might have pushed it back farther away from where he wants it to be so that we can further entrench who we are because we all on this side look good and we talk good and we smell good and we are good, but those people over there. But Jesus is completely turning that idea on its head. He concludes this teaching, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside, and they defile a person. It's not necessarily about looking the part thinking the part, playing the part. It's about living the part. And yet, I know as much as you know that we can feel that we are entrenched over here and we've built up this wall and we've put people on that side of it, and yet the things that we say and the things that we do and the things that we think demonstrate ourselves to be the ones that fit into this category, the ones that continually, perpetually defile ourselves by what comes out of who we are. I don't have to go much farther than Route 13 on a normal day when you're riding in the left lane and that one person who's right in front of you going 47 miles an hour, right next to the other person that's going 47 miles an hour, and they just go in tandem. I think they're like waving to each other and like talking and like syncing their radios and like, and you're just like, you've got to go. You know? It's the stupidest example of all time, but I demonstrate myself to be a miserable person when I'm behind the wheel of my sweet base model Honda Fit. Manual, five speed, it's built for speed, people. But you, you, you demonstrate yourself to be that person when we try so hard to hang out over here with all the right stuff and the right things and the right, and sometimes I think that we've completely missed what Jesus is, is, call, what Jesus is calling us into. You could say real quick that what Jesus is doing by declaring all foods to be clean, which he actually doesn't do, this is what Mark is interpreting for Jesus. This is Jesus' way of actually going against divine commands because in the Old Testament, they do have these food laws, these purity laws, these things that were kind of separating people. And what Jesus is doing is saying, it's different now. In light of what I've come to do, in light of this thing that we keep talking about, the kingdom, everything has changed. It's not just about keeping the law. Now, that doesn't mean that keeping the law is unimportant. Jesus would not say that. Paul would not say that. I would not say that. No one would say that. And I didn't mean to lump myself in there with Jesus and Paul. That's really good company. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's, it's different. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying things like new wine into new wineskins. The old way of doing things cannot contain me. The things that I'm doing, you're not ready for them. You're talking about breaking bread and eating without washing hands? Come on. We've moved on. There is no food that's unclean. Everybody can be a part in this play. Everyone can have a seat at this table. I want to ask just four questions. And I don't even really want to expand on them. I just want to throw them out there. And this is how we're going to conclude. This, this really weird first century teaching about washing hands and what Jesus does with that, it's not just about washing hands. 
From this, I think that we can ask four really important questions. The first one, what human traditions have we instituted that nullify God's commands? What are the things that we think are over here that define us that actually don't? What are the things that we think are over here that are drawing us closer, that are actually allowing us to hurt other people? What are the things over here that we think are the identity markers for who a true follower is? And to that, Jesus would say, you hypocrite. What lines of identity have we drawn that are limiting or restrictive or inappropriate? Who are the people on this side of the fence that we say no? Who are the people over here that we say you're not good enough, smart enough, clean enough? You don't have the right beliefs enough that piece of doctrine that you think is so wrong that you're completely over here. Who are the people that don't fit into this identity that we have castigated off to the side? What does our heart demonstrate to be true about us? If, if Jesus culminates this whole teaching with, it's not the outside stuff that defiles you. It's not eating bread without washing your hands that defiles you. It's the things that you say. It's the evil thoughts that dominate your, your brain, it's the things that come from out of you when you're driving on Route 13 behind two people going 47 miles an hour. What does our heart demonstrate to be true about us? They talk about character being who you are when nobody's looking. We could even open up the door and character being who you are when it's just your family looking. But both of those qualifiers, I think, demonstrate us to be a people in need, a people in sin, a people who are demonstrating our need for a savior. Fourth question, are we trusting in the finished work of Christ for our redemption and our hope, or are we trusting in this? In the things that we have created, in the things that we have established, in the things that we believe keep us in. Oh, see, I'm in because nobody knows about all my jacked up mess. I can hide it really well. Oh, I'm in because I know all the words to the doxology without looking at the screen. Oh, I'm in because I listen to praise music all the time. Are we trusting in these things that we have created or are we collectively trusting in the risen Christ? In salvation and life and hope that's only found in him. See, when he showed up, it wasn't just, good news, guys, you get to eat whatever you want and you don't even have to wash your hands to do it. It was, I'm sacrificing everything that I am because of my radical love for you and because I can see people on the other side of that fence, and I wanna bring them in. In that story, we're on the other side of the fence. We are the people that the Pharisees and the scribes do not want to have anything to do with this story, yet Jesus, because he is radically inclusive and loving and forgiving 
and merciful has allowed this beautiful option to be laid before us. Trust in me, follow in my example, and find life and life to the full. It's not pie in the sky. When you die, you get to go to heaven because there'll be a mansion there. It's right here. It's right now. All the things that dominate your thoughts, the suffering, the difficulty, the lack of identity can potentially be solved by allowing your trust to be placed in Christ. I'm loved by him. It's who I am. And my hope is that we get away from breaking bread and eating with unwashed hands and we get away from all these things and we begin to step into this beautiful newness of freedom and life and we can proclaim, I'm loved by him. It's who I am.